0: Hey friends, welcome to the Grace Enough podcast. I am your host, Amber Cullum. Each episode, I sit down with a guest to discuss their life journey and how the grace of God has impacted them along the way. After listening to today's episode, I hope you are encouraged that God can use you right now in the midst of your day-to-day life. Yes, it requires daily surrender and trust, but we must remember His grace is enough. Today's guest is Rachel Pye-Jones. Rachel and her family moved to Africa in 2003, where they have lived as expatriates since that time. Before continuing, I would like to ask you to pray for Rachel as she is battling thyroid cancer. If you would like to know how to pray specifically, please visit DjiboutiJones.com. Today, Rachel and I discuss the crossroads of faith and culture that she and her family have navigated since moving to Somaliland, Africa in 2003. We chat about why they moved to Africa, her acculturation process, living as a minority, and how that has increased her empathy for people who believe differently, what she has gleaned from the practices of her Muslim friends, and her book, Stronger Than Death. Listen to what Rachel has to say about the call to prayer.
1: I've gone through different thought processes of how I think about the character of God and the words we use to describe God or how I practice prayer. I haven't really adopted any Muslim practices, but I have been challenged by them. For example, in prayer, that's a good one. There's a call to prayer five times a day. There's mosques all over, so I can hear it from work. I can hear it from my house. And the the call to prayer is basically come to prayer in the morning. The man singing it will say prayer is better than sleep. God is great come to prayer and so I can use that to call my own self to pray to remember God even if I'm not following the exact same motions as a Muslim would and and they bow and they put their face on the ground and they stand up again and they have a very set sort of formula of going through their prayers which I don't follow but I can use the call to prayer to stimulate my own spiritual life and so things like that have really impacted my faith.
0: After listening to today's episode, I hope you were encouraged to engage the stranger, consider how they identify themselves, and treat them as a person, not a project or something to fear. Good evening, Rachel. Thank you for being here today for the Grace Enough podcast.
1: Thanks for having me, Amber. It's great to be with you.
0: Yeah, we're just going to get started by having you introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about your family and what you do.
1: So I am originally from Minnesota. But my family has spent the last 17 years in the Horn of Africa. Um, 2003, we moved to Somalia. 2004, we moved to Djibouti, which is right next to Somalia. And we've lived there ever since. Um, my husband is, or was a university professor. And now since 2016, we run together an international English language school for preschool through high school.
0: Awesome. So does it go all the way through 12th grade?
1: Well, technically it does. Yes. But we only have students up through, I think this year we have a sophomore, not very big in the high school.
0: Right. You were going to tell us about your kiddos? Yeah, I have three kids,
1: twins that are in university right now in the United States and a freshman in high school. And then I write when I have time. (laughs) Yes,
0: that's right. When you have time and you're working on a new book currently, right? I am. Yep. Oh, and do you know when that's going to come out?
1: The manuscript is due in April, nice. and so I'm assuming it'll be a year out from that, but we don't have a date set.
0: Tell me a little bit about your faith journey. I always love to ask my guests, like how they came to know Jesus and what that process looked like for them.
1: Well, I grew up in a really wonderful Christian family. So my parents, my siblings, my grandparents, my cousins, you know, we're just a really a family, extended family, even that loves Jesus. Yeah. And when I was... Apparently, around four years old, I prayed the prayer with my mom. Um, I didn't really know what I was doing at that time, but I did know that Jesus was somebody that I wanted to be with. If a four-year-old can even know that, I don't really remember it. Apparently, my older sister had told me that there was two places, heaven and hell, and heaven was with Jesus, and hell was a place where you were inside a crib and all of your toys were on the outside of the crib. <laughs> And I did not want to go there.
0: I was going to say, that so, is definitely the four-year-old's worst nightmare, right?
1: Right, exactly. So I was like, Well, if, if Jesus is what I need, then that's what I want. Obviously, you know, limited understanding. But right. as I grew, um, I just feel like I always loved Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so there was never another point where I made another real conscious decision, but it was just sort of, what I continued to want and what I continued to love. And then in college, the word, the Bible just became rich to me all of a sudden. I, it was a, a freshness to it. There was a hunger for knowing God through his word. And so I really started to grow um, in kind of the disciplines of reading the Bible and learning to pray, and things like that. And then now I'm in my forties and I feel like I'm having another sort of deepening yep. shift happening just as I get older, as I go through my own personal struggles, family, friends, you know, the older you get, the more people you love and the more people you love, the more pain there is in the world. And and so watching God meet me in those trials and meet my friends in their trials, um, I feel like my faith has just become more of a sense of being with God, with Jesus and less of some kind of conviction of, of right theology or right dogma. It's more relational than it's been. So it's, it's been a journey and that's a, that's the word for it as sort of cliche as that is. I know,
0: but it is the truth, because even if we use a big word like sanctification, that's what it is, is Mm. a growing closer to Christ and whatever that looks like over your lifetime, hopefully. And if that doesn't change, then I have to question, like, (laughs) are you really growing? You know, I mean, you want it to change and evolve um, in your understanding of God. So I can completely appreciate that. Mm -hmm. Well, you shared that you have been in Africa, the Horn of Africa, for the last 17 years. Um, What led you and your husband there?
1: When we were first married, we lived in an apartment complex in downtown Minneapolis. And Minneapolis has still, and at that time, the largest population of Somalis in the United States. It was close to the University of Minnesota campus where we were students. And so it was convenient and it was cheap. And all of our neighbors... Most of our neighbors were from Somalia. And so we hadn't really thought much about that part of the world, but we knew we wanted to serve and work internationally. He was interested in being a professor. I had a degree in linguistics. And so we um, both of us were coming out of lives and experience and families where we had been given so much in terms of education and health and family support and even wealth and you know middle class kind of stuff, we wanted to give out of that. So we knew we wanted to go someplace. And um, Somalia, as far as we knew, was off the table because this is the late 90s, yes. early 2000, and it was violent. But we started to hear from our neighbors about the north of Somalia, which is it's called Somaliland. And mm-hmm. it's a peaceful section of the country that is trying to break away and be its own country, but it's not recognized yet by the UN. And so they started telling us this is peaceful. There's a functional university there. At that time, it was the only one in the country. They're desperate for native English speaking professors to come. And so we had this open invitation to come and also a commitment by the local community to us to help us because this is really far outside of our comfort zone and what we were used to and what we felt like we could even do. But with that support that was you know, promised to be there for us. And with the invita- invitation to come, uh, we moved there in 2003 with two and a half year old twins. My job was just going to be to take care of the family and the house, which takes a lot of work in a place like that. It was a rural area and uh, learn language. Those were my, and, you know, take parent, the kids. And my husband was working. So we did that in 2003, um, really by invitation. And what we heard from Somalis of just this great need and hunger for people to come and invest
0: Well, so did several of your neighbors, after they would finish university, I'm assuming maybe that's what, were a lot of your neighbors here for college?
1: At that time, they were mostly refugees. Okay. So now there's, you know, Minnesota-born American Somalis who are at university, but at that time, they were primarily refugees.
0: Yeah, I think that's incredible that they were refugees coming to America to experience safety or what, however you want to phrase that. Mm-hmm. And you all decided we're going to go where you guys are leaving.
1: Yeah. <laughs> you know, most of them, most of them were from the South. Yes. Um, they had connections in the North, but yeah, I, they came needing safety, needing healthcare, needing even trauma, kind of counseling sort of things. And we were coming out of this place of strength and yeah. solidity, I guess I could say in comfort. And wanted to be stretched, but we didn't want to be stretched to the point of, you know, death or things like that. So we weren't going to the same extreme as what they had come out of. I don't want to make that
0: comparison exactly. Right. Well, eventually, you did leave Somalia and you or Somaliland and you moved to Djibouti. And just to give our listeners a little bit more of an understanding and just a visual of what it's like there. Tell us a little bit about the country itself, what it looks like, the religion, the just the culture.
1: Sure. So Djibouti is right across the border from where we lived before in Somaliland. Majority population is Somali. The other people groups that are there are Arabs, mostly from Yemen, and a people group called the Afar, who also live in Ethiopia and Eritrea. And all of them are Muslim. So the country is 95-96% Muslim. The majority of non-Muslims then are not native Djiboutians, like us or people from Ethiopia or Kenya who have come for work. So the it's a desert country right on the water, bordered. I kind of describe it as a Pac-Man-shaped country bordered by Somalia, Ethiopia, Eritrea, and the Red Sea with Yemen across the water. So it's kind of this peaceful, stable place surrounded by you know Somali pirates in the water, war in Yemen, war in Somalia, just a lot of challenges in the region. But Djibouti itself is stable. It's a former French colony, so there's a lot of French influence french language french food which is great for cheese <laughs> <laughs> um and then yeah it's this desert country so the country itself is very brown but it's on the water and it's at this point where the red sea and the gulf of aden meet and it's warm water so we get a really incredibly rich and beautiful underwater life oh, so cool. the snorkeling and the diving is just really beautiful
0: I know from just having read some of the things that you've posted, you love to, and you've written, I think, some books as well on traveling in the country and all the different things to do. And it's the hottest country in the world. Is that correct?
1: It has at least the hottest sections. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like it can reach 120, 125 degrees, just straight up degrees in the summer.
0: That is just crazy. And I mean, people just have open windows and learn to deal with it. Or what's that like?
1: Yeah, we have air conditioners.
0: Yes. But, but I mean, does everybody? It's also
1: incredibly expensive. Yeah. No, not everybody has air conditioners. So, you know, like there's nomadic people still who live out in the deserts and they they're so tough. They're so strong. They love it. They love the heat. You know, it's I compare it as the opposite to Minnesota, which is so cold. And the Minnesotans sometimes say they love the cold. They're, they're used to it. So we just went to the opposite extreme.
0: Right. When you say that about Minnesota, my husband's best, one of his best friends lives in Minnesota. And one of the first times he visited there, I mean, it was February or March. And he's like, yeah, there were people on their bicycles with shorts on, Amber. And I'm like, (laughs) I mean, it could have been warmer than like 40 degrees. And he's like, yeah, you're right. It was really, really cold. Yeah, Yeah,
1: 40 degrees is a warm Minnesota day. But in in Djibouti, one time it was maybe like 80, which is about as cold as it gets. Wow. And my kids were young, and they were like, Mom, is this how cold it gets when it snows? <laughs>
0: <laughs> and you're like, um, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> Just wait for your experience with Grandma and Grandpa, right? Exactly. Well, when we hear people moving overseas, particularly when it's someone's a Christian, it almost always comes down to their you know, missionaries, but for you, you and your husband moved so that your husband could work at a university. And so you talk a lot about how peaceful it is living among different religions where you live. Give us a little bit of insight into that because you befriended, you know, when you first moved, obviously you have tons of friends now, but I'm not sure exactly what her name was. I think it was Amal maybe or Amali.
1: Yeah, uh, I did Change her name in that story, but yes, we'll call her ML. Yeah. And
0: so you guys were friends, and that was a very wonderful friendship for you because she taught you a lot about cooking and just how to do things in the culture. And so, talk to us a little bit about living in a foreign land and you have a certain faith, and the majority of your friends have a different faith, and just how you navigate that.
1: Yeah. It's really changed and evolved over the years how I have interacted with Islam and Muslims in the beginning in Somalia. It was one of the clearest differences was in clothing, which is often what people think about when they think of Muslim women. And so I did wear Somali clothes. I wore long dresses. I covered my hair. We were some of the only foreigners in that village. And so it really felt like a rural place, more conservative. So I felt I wanted to blend in in that way. Now in Djibouti, I don't cover my hair. I wear pretty Western clothes most of the time, just because there's a difference of understanding, difference of openness. Also, in Somalia, there were no churches. We were a church, you know, my family. We had told the university we're Christians, and we're going to, we would like to be able to practice our own faith in our home. And they said, of course you can do that. You're welcome to do that. And then in Djibouti, now there are actually three sort of public church buildings, a Protestant building, a Catholic cathedral, and an Ethiopian Orthodox building that have crosses. And um, there's actually one point near the port where you can look across the water and see a beautiful mosque, the Ethiopian Orthodox church, at the top of it, and the cross on the Catholic cathedral, all in the same sort of view. Okay. And to me, that's really symbolic of how these faiths have been able to interact. I mean, there's obviously a majority is... Islam but they respect the freedom of especially foreigners who come to practice their own religion and so that's just been something that's been really good to navigate as being a minority religious minority I've I've gone through different reading of the Quran I've read it 3 times in three different languages I've gone through different thought processes of how I think about the character of God and the words we use to describe God or how I practice prayer I haven't really adopted any Muslim practices, but I have been challenged by them. For example, in prayer, that's a good one. There's a call to prayer five times a day. There's mosques all over, so I can hear it from work. I can hear it from my house. And the the call to prayer is basically come to prayer. In the morning, the man singing it will say, prayer is better than sleep. God is great. Come to prayer. And so I can use that to call my own self to pray, Mm -hmm. to remember God, even if I'm not following the exact same motions as a Muslim would, and and they bow, and they put their face on the ground, and they stand up again, and they have a very set sort of formula of going through their prayers, which I don't follow. But I can use the cult of prayer to stimulate my own spiritual life. And so things like that have really impacted my faith. You know, they have a whole month Ramadan of fasting. And so sometimes I have followed that or tried to, I haven't always done it as strict as they do, but I've tried to respect it and follow it and appreciate that month of fasting and the communal aspect of it. And so, again, that can really stimulate my own practice of fasting and just making me think about it more. Whereas in the U.S., I feel like, I guess I can't speak for now, but when I lived here before, Mm -hmm. spiritual practice was not a part of the common conversation.
0: No, it was not. I mean, I feel like it slowly... There are some people moving in that direction, and you can see it, but you're correct. I mean, we just, it's definitely something where people almost think you're a little bit kooky when you do that.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, but in a Muslim country, in Djibouti, it's just so much a part of daily life. The thing that has really changed that I have thought about is how being a minority mm. helps me see how other people see me so in american christianity we refer to people who are not christians by the negative they're unbelievers or they're non-christians but that's not how they see themselves they see themselves as muslim or buddhist or atheist or they have another positive identifier about them but we sort of put this negative on them and in djibouti and in somalia too i get called often infidel it's a a word galada or galo or gala just different ways of saying it and um I don't feel like I'm an infidel. <laughs> right. So when I first when I first heard people calling me that, which sometimes can just mean foreigner or white person, but the technical translation is infidel. And so at first I was, and sometimes I still am pretty offended by that. I'm to not say, an infidel. Does it
0: put you immediately on the defense?
1: Yes, I'm not an infidel. Mm-hmm. I have a strong personal faith. It's not your faith, you know, to a Muslim, but it's meaningful and deep to me. And so... I started to think about that as how other people see me, how I am seen mm. is negative and other. And so what am I doing when I put on those phrases of non, non-Christian, unbeliever, not like me, onto somebody else? I'm not respecting their potential, deep, personal, meaningful faith. Mm. And so kind of understanding that, that nuance of what it feels like to be seen, not as how I see myself, has helped me Then reverse that and try to really see a Muslim, not as not me, but as them. Right. You know, so as they are through their worldview and meeting them in that place has been really good for me. There's a this idea of that I've started to really wrestle with and think about is how do we love the stranger? How do we love? Because I am the stranger. In Djibouti. And people have loved me well for the most part. Especially like the the woman ML that you mentioned. Friends who have really welcomed me into the culture, ushered me into the culture, been my guides, my helpers. um, They've helped me navigate things. So I'm not an easy person to love there because I have a funny accent. I eat different food. I have different culture in my home, but I've seen, I've felt this welcome. So now I take that back to the United States, for example, or if I'm seeing someone else who's different than me, we have refugees or immigrants or just people who have different faith systems or look different. And my empathy for that person and what it, means to love them and how they would feel by being loved Mm. by me has really been impacted by being a foreigner and a stranger in a strange place. So how do we love the stranger? I think we love them by being a stranger ourselves and having that experience.
0: Yeah. And it is something, you know, as an American Christian myself, that you, in order to put yourself in that position, one of the only ways to really do it in America is to take yourself into a place somewhere in our country where you are a minority, whether Mm -hmm. that's like you lived in a community where there were lots of Somali refugees, or maybe it's a church culture where everybody doesn't look like you, or, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe it's just a neighborhood or a school system or whatever, and give yourself the opportunity to just feel a little bit uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And that can impact your thinking quite significantly.
1: Absolutely. And I think the initial response will be, first of all, uncomfortable, but also fear because our I think our human tendency is to think negative of someone if we don't understand them. If we don't understand the words they're using, whether it's language or the culture, we think we feel threatened or we feel afraid. But what you start to realize is that that's not the reality. Every place that I am not fluent in the language, they are not threatening me. <laughs> they're right. just doing their thing. And I'm the weirdo that I showed up there. And so that fear has has really lessened. I can go other places now and recognize, okay, people are not threatening me. They're just living their life. And how can I engage on a level that is um, meaningful?
0: So among all your friends, do people ever ask you about what you believe?
1: Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah.
0: So does it get into some really interesting conversations? Or a lot of, like, are they trying to ask you to follow what they believe? How does that look for you? Yes.
1: Um, like I said, almost every day faith comes up in some way. I'll be pumping gas or I don't pump in Djibouti They pump the gas for you. So the guy comes and pumps gas and he says, become a Muslim. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, Just like it, that. And this is someone that you know, because it's the same person all the time, or they just know you're not because you don't wear the same clothing and you're a white person.
1: It could be both. Like there's the gas station right by my house. You know, I know that guy. Or if I speak Somali, especially if I speak Somali, you know, why is this foreigner speaking Somali? There's not very many of us who do. It starts a conversation. Um, And in Somali and in Djibouti, you use a lot of words that are just more God word all the time. So even if I'm speaking French, uh, Somali words or Arabic phrases will just come in. Things like praise God, thanks be to God, Mm. if God wills. Those, Those are phrases that I use almost every day. And so if I use that, Then someone will say, oh, are you a person of faith? And usually it's a compliment. They mean like, I care about you, so I want you to become like me. I want you to believe like me because um, we have a relationship. Yeah. I I don't feel pressure to convert. They actually, it's a a revert for Muslims because they believe that everyone is born Muslim. And so you don't convert, you revert to your original state of being born a Muslim. If you, if like me, if I became a Muslim. I don't feel pressured to, I just feel like people care about me. And so there's interesting conversations just come up about what I believe or Christmas just happens, you know, and when we first moved there, there was really nothing for Christmas, but over the years, they've slowly uh, become more consumerized, I guess. Right. <laughs> um, so there's Santa and there's gifts and chocolate and things like that. But um, what does Christmas mean? Mm-hmm. And, and how is it not? And just about
0: people, your friends have asked you that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so it's just conversational or or people just assume also, especially if I'm in a rural area Mm -hmm. um, where I do some work and have some relationships, people there will assume that I'm a Muslim, even though I'm, I don't look like them. They just, their whole worldview, everyone they've ever met is a Muslim. And so with that assumption, then, um, you know, it starts different kinds of conversations. They would assume that I've read the Quran or that I've prayed in certain ways or that I want to go on Hajj, the pilgrimage to Mecca. Right. So,
0: That's so interesting. And does your husband end up experiencing, I mean, very similar things? Because he, I'm assuming his role at the school is almost like a superintendent or a principal, is that correct? Yeah. But it's an international school. So he has all types of religions and countries represented?
1: Yeah, we have a wide variety. Um, But a lot of his community, because he was a professor for so many years, he has really great relationships with Djiboutian professors. And they for example, they've started a research group together. A bunch of PhDs came together and started this group. And so, yeah, he definitely has conversations like that with people. Um, another way that they compliment him often, hes he has a group of guys he's played volleyball with for 16 years now, every wow, week. Wow, that's so awesome. And, uh, yeah, and often they'll say, you know what, Tom, we really care about you, and we would just love to offer you another wife. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Oh my gosh, I don't even know what to say to that, Rachel.
1: <laughs> they can have up to four and they're like, you know, it would just really bond you more, even more to our community if we just, if you married one of us. And Tom was always like, you know what, I have more than wife enough.
0: Wow. Now, was that an adjustment for you? Because I, you know, in my mind, I'm like, what? Don't be offering my husband another
1: wife. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I knew that they could have up to four. And so we just have understood it as a compliment um, that they care (laughs) relationally about him. I I could take offense to it if I really wanted to, but I've just decided not to because they also mean it kind of in jest. They know that he's never going to take them up on it. Gotcha. It's just kind of a way of of them joking around and he's come up with various joking responses over the years. So all these things are just a way of saying you're part of our community and we'd like, we'd like to continue growing this relationship, you know?
0: Yeah. Well, and I, I mean, just out of curiosity. So, you know, I often have heard that with Muslims, men, don't communicate with women very much. And so is that the case for you? Do a lot of Tom's friends communicate with you at all? Like, I mean, are there ever, you know, times when you all have dinner with your friends? Or what does it look like in a culture that's just different from ours?
1: Uh, that's a good question. Um, his circle, especially because they're they're very educated, a lot of mm-hmm. them got their PhDs in France. You can't actually get a PhD yet in Djibouti. So they, we kind of call them French fried Djiboutians. Okay. <laughs>
0: That's so great. Um,
1: <laughs> um, but they have a lot of that French or European influence. Right. And so there's a lot of cheek kissing that happens, for example. I don't okay. do not do a lot of cheek kissing with Djiboutian men, but because of that, it sort of makes it more appropriate to at least shake hands or to say hello. Whereas in Somalia, I never touched a Somali man. I right. um, rarely spoke to them, even didn't look them in the eye. But if I run into one of Tom's co-workers or a friend in the grocery store, for example, we'll stop and chat and greet each other. And it's very pleasant um, when it comes to like you asked about going out with families or with friends. That yeah. doesn't really happen so much. We've only I would say so, like been out to a restaurant with a Somali couple with Somalis who have come out of the United States or other places and come back to visit. So there's not a lot of that. There is a, a little bit of it, I guess, in certain sectors, but usually it's gender segregated or associated with the kids. Like the men will go out and meet together somewhere else, and the women will be somewhere with the kids. So our first house was a duplex. We lived upstairs. The Somali family lived downstairs. We shared a yard space, and they had... I think 12 or 13 kids that were all around our age. So their kids were our kids' age, and they all at various times lived in the house. So it was a very full, active yard and house. And I would often spend time in the back where they had an outdoor kitchen with the women, and Tom would hang out in the front with the men, and the kids would just be running, playing football, soccer in the yard together. So. The socializing just happens in daily life around work, right. around cooking, stuff like that. Yeah, Because there's Not so, so many people who
0: live. I mean, there's also a lot of just in and out and true community living, like you interact with your neighbors.
1: At that time we did, yeah. yeah. That, yeah. that was the, the longest house we've had living oh. there.
0: And that's when your kids were little too, which means there's always more. Yep. I don't know. Interaction, burn off the energy, you know, all the things. (laughs)
1: Exactly. (laughs) Right. Well, so you
0: have three children, and they, too, while they were born in the States, I mean, have been raised in a different culture, although all three of them are American citizens. And so talk to us a little bit about, you know, how faith and culture collide for them and just being, I know it's a term that people probably aren't as familiar with, but third culture kids.
1: Yeah, so my youngest was actually born in Djibouti. So she likes to say that she's Djiboutian American. She (laughs) has American passport citizenship, but she was born there. They are all three third culture kids. So TCK is how it's abbreviated. And it, it means basically a kid or a person who has spent a significant portion of their childhood years outside their passport country. So refugees, immigrants, expats, business people, military, all those are third culture kids. And even once they become adults, they often say I'm a third culture kid adult or an adult TCK. And so there are kids who have, it doesn't matter if they've lived in 10 different countries or two different countries, but it's the sense of having lived outside their native place. And so they form kind of a third culture outside Mm -hmm. the host country and outside their native country so that would be my kids definitely living in that space and like I referenced earlier um, how I've learned to recognize that when I'm in a place that I'm not familiar with the language or the people to recognize that that's not a fearful position to be in my kids thrive in that like that Mm. is how they grew up they're not afraid of trying new things going new places being outside their comfort zone um, because they just they're able to navigate that kind of stuff and understand that people are people everywhere. Yeah. So they've had interesting, you know, a lot of their friends growing up were Somali neighbors, friends, kids from school. So you asked about faith, for example, and my youngest daughter, this is just an example, I guess. um, One of her favorite teachers, just a wonderful teacher. I think it was fourth grade was a Djiboutian woman, Muslim woman. And Sometime in that year, there was a real violent terror attack in France. Mm. And so my daughter came home from school and she said, Mom, is Mrs. Hibo, Madame Hibo, is she, does she want to kill me? Oh, wow. And I said, where did you hear that? And somehow she had just heard it maybe from some of the French kids. There's a, a large French population. I don't know yes. where she would have heard that. She would not have heard it in our household. And I said, absolutely not. Madame Hibo teaches you origami and she teaches you how to read and how to do math. Like she loves you. And she said, yeah, that's what I thought. So somehow she had already started to pick up on this fear that other people have of Muslims because of this terror kind of thing. And and that wasn't what she experienced in her life at birthday parties and at school. And um, she said, yeah, I didn't think so. Okay. So it was just like this relief that came over her okay, I can love my Muslim friends and I don't have to be afraid of them. And so it made me really sad that even in our own house where this is how we live, right. she was that was still around somewhere. She picked it up. But as they've gotten older and we've been able to keep talking about those kinds of things and talking about Islam and they see people praying and we talk about, you know, why are they praying like that and why do we pray like this? And so even with my kids, it's provided a real dynamic way of discussing faith and what we believe in. And what someone else believes and how do we interact with that and how do we not be judgmental or negative and yet still hold to our own conviction, you know?
0: Yes. Um without fear. Yeah, that's a really, really good just a good perspective to think about. Like we can still interact and have very healthy relationships despite not believing the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. And I do think that's something in America for sure, uh, that whole every Muslim is a terrorist idea mm-hmm. is such a wrong narrative mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and it's just so horrible to even I, I, just even some of the way that people justify it by taking some things that are in the Quran and mm-hmm. you know saying oh it says this so that means they all that's their goal and I'm like yeah I don't, I don't no. think so." <laughs>
1: <laughs> you're actually this is an old statistic I'm not sure how accurate it still is but if you live in America, you are more likely to be killed by your refrigerator falling on you mm. than by a Muslim terrorist. And yeah, so I, mean, I don't it's... know anybody who's afraid of their refrigerator. And every American I know welcomes a refrigerator into their home. Right.
0: And I mean, that's the thing too. It's like you don't want to negate the horrible things that have right. happened. But at the same time, you can't just generalize that a whole entire population of people are all the exact same because such a small percentage of have done horrible things.
1: Right, exactly. And I maybe mean, could say the same thing even about people who identify as Christians.
0: Absolutely.
1: So it's there's no way to, there's no room to say that.
0: That's absolutely right. Well, I want to talk a little bit about the most recent book that you have published, and it's called I want to make sure that I get it right. I'm um, stronger than death, which is a biography of Somalia's quote, unquote, Mother Teresa, um, you will be able to pronounce her name better than me. So that's why <laughs> I'm not going to and I'm going to let you but tell us a little bit about her life. And what about it made you want to write a whole biography?
1: So the whole title is Stronger Than Death, How Annalena Tonelli Defied Terror and Tuberculosis in the Horn of Africa. So her name is Annalena Tonelli. She was an Italian Catholic woman who in 1969 moved to Kenya and Somali regions of Kenya, eventually moved to Somalia and then Somaliland, where she was working almost every, every place always with people with tuberculosis. And so in 2003, she was living in Somaliland in the same town, that I moved to with my family in 2003. I had never heard of her before that. I never actually met her, even though we lived just like a few blocks away from her house in the hospital where she worked. Wow! But she was assassinated in October of 2003. Mm. And that assassination caused my family to flee the country. I mean, that's what instigated our move to Djibouti. Mm. There was another murder of a British couple 10 days later. And so the day that Those three murders piled on top of each other. Um, The day after the murder of the British couple, we received a phone call that said, you have, you're leaving, you're on an airplane that leaves in two hours, and the airport was two hours away from our house. So we threw everything into a bag, one backpack, one suitcase, kids in the car, run, basically, not knowing if we were in danger or not. And so at that time, I didn't have the mental capacity or emotional wherewithal to think about this this woman who had been killed just around the corner from our house. But over the course of the next several years, as I started developing my writing career and as the kids got older and I had more space to think and write, um, <laughs> you I You mean started there's to wonder. hope
0: for me in that? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely.
1: There is light. Um, I started to wonder who was this woman and what did she do? Why was she there for so long? Every Somali that I talked to who knew her loved her. So all these people loved her and someone killed her. So what happened? And then a a friend of mine produced a documentary for the UNHCR about her life. It's actually on YouTube, Legacy of a Nobody. It's beautiful. I'll Um, make sure
0: that I link that in the show notes.
1: Yeah, it's about 22 minutes long, I think. And so as he was researching for this documentary, he contacted me and said, Rachel, this woman was so much more incredible than we knew. You need to dive into her life and see what you can find out. And so I did. And then, and this biography came out. She, um, had spent 34 years developing treatment systems for tuberculosis among Somali nomads. And that system eventually became a global system that was used to treat tuberculosis. It was known as, um, DOTS, directly observed therapy, short course. So, cool. so she, yeah. And then she also was working with HIV. She was working with female genital mutilation. She partnered with a couple of Somalis to help fight against that practice. She had a feeding center during the war in Somalia. So she had just done really incredible things. And I was convicted personally by what I was reading because I had also moved to this same region, same exact town Mm. to try to be helpful, to try to do some good. And what I read about that she was doing was so much like not even comparable to what I was doing. Um, just the way she loves people and her commitment to serving the poor, being with the sick, um, her absolute fearlessness in the face of danger. Uh, she just was incredible. She was taken hostage. She was beaten. She was had so many death threats. I, it was just incredible. So I wanted to understand mm-hmm. how she could go to those extremes, what motivated her, why did she do it all, and then kind of writing through my own process a little bit of comparing. Right. Um, Feeling like I come up short, and yet we're not all called to live that same radical life. I feel like we need people like her, we need people like Mother Teresa, who are so much outside the norm, Mm -hmm. so far beyond what we can all achieve or hope to be like, that they pull up everybody else. They make Mm -hmm. us want to be a little bit better, love people a little bit more, knowing that we're never going to be quite all that. That's radical. um...
0: Yes, and we need people to populate the earth. That's what I say too. When I think about like Mother Teresa, you know, I'm like, and we need people to populate the earth. So I'm gonna (laughs) at least give myself. No, that's that's not fair. But um, yeah, I mean, it's it's true that whole idea of we need those people to pull us up or to. Give us even something to look at and set our eyes towards and be like, wow, in the worst of circumstances, yes, people persevere, and they do good, and they love people, even when it's really, really hard. Yes, And so absolutely. that's awesome. Well, as we finish up, I wasn't going to ask you about your running club, but I kind of want to know about it. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, you started a running club for girls, the first one, mm-hmm. and is it just because people weren't interested in running before or because it is a Muslim country, that's just something that young girls felt they couldn't do? Or, you know, what led to that? And how do you run in 120 degree heat?
1: Very slowly.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I run very slowly in 40 degrees, so I would be in trouble.
1: (laughs) Oh, man, it's hard. Um, I'm stubborn, though, so I just keep doing it. But it was 2008, and I had just started running myself at that time, okay. and went to the track with another American woman. There's one there, At that time, there was one track in town, and we were just doing laps. I was learning how to do speed work. I say in quotation speed work. As long but as it's there was faster
0: a, than you normally run, it's speed work. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. There was a group of girls who would run there, and they were kind of like a, a ragtag bunch of girls, and... To participate in races, they needed to be on a team, Uh but nobody would take these girls. There was a few girls that were actually on teams. Um, One of them ended up eventually coaching our team, and she actually went to the Olympics. Wow. She was training with someone else. So this, this particular group were kind of troublemakers, and no one wanted them. But they kept running. They would just show up and run, and they kept getting injured. Sometimes they would almost faint. They were dehydrated. They were from very, very low income families. Some of them had never been to school a day in their life. Some of them mm. didn't know how to hold a pencil, those kinds of things. Didn't know how to write their name.
0: Wow. So And these as are we, teenage girls.
1: Yep. Yeah. And so as we just got to know these girls, um, we realized, you know, they could with just a small amount of coaching, they could prevent injuries. We could if we started a club, we could require them to be in school, to be on the team. Like that would be the requirement. Yeah. And so we started this group, girls run to and the girls are in two with the, the numeral two. And the the whole goal of the team at that initially was to keep them in school, get them in school, find a school who would take a girl who didn't know how to, how to hold a pencil. Right. And then keep them on the team, keep them running. And so now one really fun story is that a girl who joined the team in the second year it existed, so 2009, she is now the coach of the team And she is a university student.
0: Wow.
1: That just makes me so happy.
0: (laughs) See, you are doing good.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I feel like she's done more of that good than I did. And also, the. But sometimes (laughs) it's just
0: putting the belief in somebody and organizing something and then empowering somebody to say, you can take it on. Like, you can be the next leader of this. You don't need me to do it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So that's been really fun. And getting to know this, the young woman who went to the Olympics, she's a good friend now. Like that's also been really fun. And yeah, yeah. So mostly now the girls, I'm not as involved with the team directly. I do a little bit, you know, behind the scenes or on the side, just relationally connecting with them. But yeah, I still still
0: run. Still yeah, to so new, new girls are joining all the time.
1: Yep, they have new girls every year. And there's really one thing that still is very hard to overcome is there's very much the attitude of if you are a mother or if you want to be a mother, you, you can't run. run. So if you've given birth, you, it's like it's physically impossible to run. I didn't even start running until after I'd had all my kids. So I wasn't a runner until after that. Or if you run, you will probably damage your uterus. It might fall out. It might just be <laughs> <get> broken. <laughs> and so being a mother... Who runs, and even now um, with some health issues, like I, to still run and to still demonstrate. This is yes. one of my things that makes me so stubborn to keep running. It's not just about me; it's about yeah. showing that a forty-year-old woman who's had babies, even I had a C-section,
0: yes, even I had a
1: vaginal delivery, and it's all the parts are still working. Just fine. yes, yeah, <laughs> and I can still run.
0: And so like, we may need a little. <laughs> I want to say something there, but yes, we can still do it. <laughs>
1: Yeah, we can still do it. So yeah, just physically demonstrating that as somehow matters to me. So I keep doing it.
0: Well, where can our listeners find you on the web?
1: The best place to find me is my website, com, And I have a newsletter there that I don't really blog so much anymore. But the newsletter comes out with an essay every other week. Yeah. So that's the best place to find me. I'm also on Instagram, Jones.
0: Yes, and it's P-I-E-H.
1: Yep, but pronounced like 3.1.
0: That's right. That's right. And then your book, we can purchase it on Amazon and all the other places, correct?
1: Yep. It's on Barnes and Noble. It's on IndieBound. Yep. And it's through Plow Publishing. So you can also find it on their website.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it, Rachel.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. It was great.
0: Thank you for listening to today's episode. Resources, links, and quotes from today's conversation can be found at com under the show notes tab. If you are enjoying the show, I would like to ask you a few favors. Number one, make sure you are subscribed to the podcast. You can head over to Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and iHeartRadio. Clicking that subscribe button helps to make sure you never miss a new episode of the podcast. Number two, if you enjoy the show, would you take a moment to leave a review on iTunes? Those reviews help me to know how the show is impacting you. And number three, the best way to grow is for people like you to share it with your friends. Will you share your favorite Grace Enough podcast episode via text, email, or social media? Again, I'm so grateful for each one of you who listen week in and week out. Thank you for listening to the Grace Enough podcast. Tune in next time.